So we are teaching through 1 Corinthians with this theme of everyday discipleship, and we are in a bit of a mini-series called The Church and the Spirit. As I was you know, sitting over here this morning, just listening to our announcements and listening to um, and participating in worship, I was thinking about just a little bit about our theme, everyday discipleship, and thinking about how Paul has really taken the Corinthian church from the everyday things of life, from power to personal relationships, to how we use our opportunities and money, to how we relate to one another. And this book is really a book about our discipleship to Jesus. And what was going on in the Corinthian church, as we've been seeing, is that the Corinthian church had failed to see the real-life implications of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the everyday minuscule to the big ways that Jesus calls the whole of us, that he wants to animate the whole person as his disciple. And so we've been talking for weeks and weeks now just about the social and spiritual and sexual problems of the church in Corinth. And I say this often, but it feels like this laundry list, but Paul is just systematically going through all the ways that the church had failed to recognize the real life, everyday implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we've been talking about that quote by Leslie Newbegin every time I teach. The choice of the church in every age will always be, will we be shaped by the culture or will we be shaped by scripture, by the biblical story or by the cultural story? Now, in chapter 11, Paul turned his attention to the worship gatherings of the Corinthian church, and he addresses the varied issues in their gatherings all the way through chapter 14. And last time I shared with you guys, I was sharing with you that, you know, chapter 12, this exposition of the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, Paul is doing more than telling us about spiritual gifts that the individual has. He's actually talking about so much more. He's talking about the rich diversity of the Spirit's work in the church. What that might look like as a gift that you have, a ministry that you might be called into, but also ways in which the Spirit simply wants to manifest His presence as we gather together. I mentioned that the common translation of verse one is spiritual gifts or gifts of the spirit. It's misleading because the word gifts is actually not in the original Greek. Paul instead is speaking like this big heading of spirituals. And it's really all about how the spirit of God moves forward the mission of Jesus through the followers of Jesus. Now, you'll remember that Paul has mentioned that there is confusion around these things, confusion surrounding what the Spirit of God might prompt someone to say. Would the Spirit of God prompt someone to say, Jesus is cursed? Paul says, absolutely not. The Spirit of God will prompt someone to say, Jesus is Lord, and to manifest a life that declares that Jesus is Lord. So there's all sorts of confusion in the Corinthian church. And I believe that this confusion was because of their pagan background. It was still very much a part of their thinking, 
They're speaking in their practice, as we've seen all throughout the teaching of this book. Now, I think something that we often forget is that when these Corinthians became Christian, they did not suddenly become worshipers. They weren't suddenly spiritual as opposed to being formally atheistic or agnostic. That's usually how we think of spirituality in our Western Christian culture. We think, oh, well, you went from being ignorant or denying the existence of God now to knowing God and now being spiritual. See, the Corinthians actually were very spiritual. And they were involved in all sorts of worship gatherings as a part of their culture, but their pagan worship was vastly different from what they had now been called to in Christ. Mark Buchanan, he wrote a book called The Rest of God. It's actually a book about Sabbath and how as you know, Christians, followers of Jesus, we now observe or should observe the principles of Sabbath. But in his introduction... He actually talks about the worship gatherings of the early church. And he says that the early church purposely used a different word to describe their worship gatherings than the pagans used. The word that they chose to use was the word liturgy. Now, for those of us today, that carries all sorts of connotation of high church, maybe Anglican, Presbyterian, or some of you, maybe you were raised Roman Catholic or Lutheran, and so you know about the liturgical worship in these, you know, we call them high liturgical churches. But originally, liturgy referred to a public work. Liturgy was something, this was a very, like, it wasn't a spiritual word necessarily. It was actually just used commonly in the culture. Liturgy was something accomplished by a community for the community, a town bridge, or a village well, or a city wall. That was liturgical work. It was something built by the people for the people. Now, the oddness and awkwardness of the church's decision to import this word for their worship is even stranger, more curious, when you realize there was already a religious word in circulation in the pagan world. And this was the word orgy. Now, orgy carries all sorts of sordid undertones and overtones these days, but in the days of the early church, it didn't, or at least at that time, it was still somewhat in the background. But this is the thing about orgy. Orgy described a public event that produced a private, usually ecstatic experience. There was a group gathering, but it was not about the collective. It was about me. It was about my personal experience. It was about what I got out of it. Regardless of how many people were involved, the emphasis was always squarely on the emotional experience of the individual. Not so with liturgy, and this was purposeful. Liturgy is done by me. I am invited perhaps required to play a role, but it isn't about me, it's about us. It's about the other. It's about the community collective. 
Its purpose is to benefit the entire community, whether to provide protection, support, or a resource. It's about a building project that benefits all. Paul is bringing these Corinthians misapplication of their worship gatherings into a correct understanding. See, he is taking these pagans from a selfish, individualistic idea around worship gatherings as orgy to a self-sacrificial, others-oriented idea around worship gatherings as liturgy. And I have this deep, deep conviction that this is what we need to see in the church today. We need to think liturgically. We need this correction of our vision. We need to see our worship gatherings like this. It's a public work. It's a work done by us for us. The church, after all, is the community of the Spirit of God. It's a collective. It's the people of God, whether gathered or scattered, committed to building God's kingdom, representing God's kingdom, being this temple of the Spirit of God that gives worship to God. We're building something greater than ourselves than our own personal piety or spirituality. And I believe that this is what the Spirit of God is calling us back into, this orthodox, biblical view of the gathered church. We would come together and we would do liturgical work. This is what we see in the early church. It was an every-member ministry, and I believe that this is what we need to see in the days going ahead, that here at Calvary Chapel, each of us would take personal responsibility for this community. That we would labor together in love for the benefit of all, for this body, this local body, and then for the greater work of the kingdom of God. And not just for ourselves, for what I get out of it, for what I thought about the worship gathering. So let's talk a little bit about our individual responsibility for the common good. How does that work? Now, Paul makes it clear in our passage that this is what gifts, ministries, and manifestations of the Spirit are all about. They are all about the liturgical work of the church. So every follower of Jesus, each member of the body of Christ, has at least, according to Paul, one gifting or ability from the Spirit in order to serve the church and continue the ministry and mission of Jesus. So everyone in this room has at least, at least one. Some people have several giftings, but listen, no one person possesses all the gifts or ministries or manifestation. And God has purposely done this. 
God has purposely scattered the gifts of the Spirit through the church in order to cause us to live out interdependence and unity as the body of Christ. In this way, when properly lived out then, gifts, ministries, and manifestations help us be one body. Listen to what Paul says in verse 7. He says, to each, that's followers of Jesus, members of the body of Christ, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. That's liturgy. For the benefit of all, the common good. Now listen to how these workings of the Spirit are described in the rest of the New Testament. They share this theme of communal good and benefit for all. In Ephesians, Paul says that this, you know, Jesus gave um, these giftings to the church, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice, when each part is working properly, then we have a fully functioning body. Do you ever think about that? Like this analogy, this metaphor of the body of Christ. What happens when a part of your body doesn't work? It's a handicap. You're not a fully functioning body. Think about this. When a vast majority of Christians or of a local church body are not using their gift or their ministry, what do we have? We have a local church, a body of Christ that is spiritually handicapped. That's what we have. We have a body that is not fully functioning, not living into its full potential. For what? So all of us can be built up and strengthened. So we can see God do what he desires to do in and through his church. Peter puts it this way. I love this passage. He says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you have a speaking gift, he says, then do it as one who speaks the oracles of God. If you have a serving gift, Use it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So just hear me out one more time. If you are a Christian, you have the spirit of the living God working in you 
working through you. When Jesus finished the work of redemption, he poured out the Holy Spirit. And we're told that he poured this on his church. He gave gifts to mankind to enable us to continue his mission. And each individual Christian is given a measure of the fullness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had to empower us for service, to continue the mission of Jesus in the church and in the world at large. This is the basic New Testament teaching of what the church is and what the church does. Now, unfortunately, we don't often follow this biblical model of everyone using their gift for mutual upbuilding, but follow some form of what John Stott describes in his book, Living Church, this way. He says, the traditional model of the church is that of a pyramid with a pastor perched precariously on its pinnacle, like a little pope in his own church while the laity are arrayed beneath him in serried ranks of inferiority. It is a totally unbiblical image because the New Testament envisaged not a single pastor with a docile flock, but both a plural oversight and an every-member ministry. Now, not much better is the model of the bus in which the pastor does all the driving while the congregation are the passengers slumbering in peaceful security behind him. Quite different from either the pyramid or a bus is the biblical model of the body. The church is the body of Christ, every member of which has a distinctive function. See, an every member ministry means one person or even a group of persons cannot do everything and are not supposed to. God has called each individual member of the body of Christ to bring our unique gift, a calling, your personality, your perspective, where you've been, where you've come from. All of this bringing together, submitting to one another, leaning on one another, strengths and weaknesses, working together in order that we might help one another grow into Christ into human wholeness, and in our deeper knowledge and experience of God's love for us while we work out God's great plan to use the church to proclaim the gospel and bring people into the kingdom. Something I, I think I learned this years ago, or I just heard someone say it years ago, and I've just kind of adopted it, but this is what I love to say when I'm talking about this. Church, you are needy. You're a bunch of needy people but you are also needed. You are desperately needed. So we're all, every single one of us are needy. We cannot do everything. No one is sufficient in themselves. But you are also needed, vital to the holistic health of the body of Christ. We need to think this way. Right? Needy and needed. All of us bringing our gifts together in order to build into this greater work that God desires to do through his body. As John Stott says, one of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church is a living, growing body. And Paul uses this multiple times in his writings, right? First, or excuse me, Ephesians 4, 
Romans chapter 12, and of course here in 1 Corinthians 12. And the idea behind the body metaphor is that it's an, of an every member ministry. Everyone is absolutely essential, just like each body part is essential and plays a part in a fully functioning body. So no matter how small or large a congregation, no matter how smart or talented, resource the individuals, spiritual or unspiritual, everyone has a gift from the Spirit. Everyone has a ministry and a part to play. Everyone has something to contribute to the work that God is doing. It seems to me that for many years, the church has, by and large, kind of lost this understanding that the gathering of God's people, whether that's on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, that's in a small group, wherever it might gather, for worship, for teaching, for the breaking of bread, for fellowship, that it is for the spiritual, emotional, and physical building up of the church, and it is not primarily as a means of evangelism or outreach. Seems to me that our churches have become so concerned with making our churches these places where unbelievers will come to that we have forgot the work that we are supposed to where every member uses their gift to build up the body of Christ. And so we have almost created this kind of consumeristic, you know, we're just kind of part of the audience observing what those on the stage are doing. But this is a very unbiblical way to view the gathering of God's people. Now, evangelism is essential to the claim of the gospel. But when the Sunday morning gathering, when the focus is on nothing more than proclamation or evangelism focused toward unbelievers or new converts, you get a lot of listeners, observers, and consumers, but you do not grow many co-laborers and practitioners. We begin to think of our gatherings as service that we receive, consume, and critique, orgy, rather than a collective participation of building one another up in love until we obtain the unity of faith and the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's liturgy. Church, if I could just, if you could just hear one thing that I'm saying today, let's Build something. Let's build a fully functioning body of Christ so we might continue the mission of Jesus to the world. That's what God wants to do in and through his church. So let's build something. Let's build and be built into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Let's build and be built as a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. See, when we do that, God causes the church to shine into the world. As we gather for this every member ministry, building up the church, then we scatter into the regions around Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and we bring the light of Christ everywhere we go. So we Envision this gather and scatter model, actually, for the church. We gather to be built up and strengthened through this every member ministry, and then we scatter 
for evangelism, for proclamation, for demonstration and incarnation of the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's build something. Now, what are some of the gifts and ministries and manifestations of the Spirit? And what does it look like for me as an individual to build something, to bring something to the table, to participate in the work that God desires to do in the local church? Well, taken from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, Paul lists out very specific gifting services and manifestations of the Spirit. And so I'm just going to kind of give them all to you and then talk about them just for a minute. So these include apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, miracles, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues and interpretation of those tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, prophecy, discerning of spirits, encouragement, contribution, leadership, mercy, and service. And let me just say this, this is not an exhaustive list of what the Spirit of God does. There is much more. Paul never mentions all the gifts in any passage, and I believe that Scripture is simply giving us a sampling rather than a definitive or an exhaustive list of the gifts of the Spirit or what the Spirit might prompt a follower of Jesus to do. Just as an example of this, two Old Testament gifts not mentioned, craftsmanship. Remember that God anointed, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was this anointed craftsman and he built all the articles of the temple, of the tabernacle. The Spirit of God came upon him and enabled him to craft these beautiful tables and you know, the menorah, all of these different things. We don't read that in this list. And then again, in 1 Samuel 16, we actually have a coming on of the Spirit on an individual for writing songs of worship and praise for the gathering of God's people there at the temple. These do not appear in the New Testament list. Neither does Elijah's super speed, right? So there's lots of things that could possibly happen when the Spirit of God comes upon you. Peter, in his first epistle, he doesn't actually even list out spiritual gifts in the way that Paul does, but simply puts all spiritual gifts under the two categories of speaking and serving, and I mentioned these a moment ago. But speaking gifts, it covers the whole range of speaking, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, tongues, interpretation, teaching, evangelism, and preaching. And then, of course, the category of serving covers all those deeds one Christian does for another, whether that's administration, care for the poor and sick, including contributing funds, distributing funds and physical care, helps, leading, healing, miracles, and similar acts that express God's love and mercy in concrete form. Now, some of these gifts are very obvious, while others are a bit more nuanced and sensational. So these are all the possibilities of how God has gifted his church and the ways that he is calling us to bring these gifts to bear upon the work, to contribute to the work that God desires to do. But then there's this other part that Paul mentions here. 
and that is of sensational manifestations. And as I read through 1 Corinthians 12, this seems to me to be ways in which the Spirit of God speaks and works through individual Christians, specifically when God's people are gathered together. They're not necessarily gifts, but more manifestations or eruptions of the Spirit. And the reason I say that is because I think Paul's emphasis is that these are possible for all Christians at any time. The Spirit of God, though you might have a gift, though you might have a ministry, right? The Spirit of God might just come upon you and prompt you. He just wants to use you as a channel of his grace, as a vessel for ministry and for service. Paul says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, I believe that this should give us an expectation and excitement for what the Spirit might do in us and through us when we gather together. So I would just like to take a moment to just kind of envision what the gathering of God's people would look like within every member ministry. You guys good with that? Okay. So I believe in order to help us live that out, we have to actually think of our Sunday gatherings in terms of participation. I've been saying that again and again. But like participation in in a theatrical play, the audience, if you will, is not the congregation gathered. I'm not the performer, you're not the audience, but actually the living God seated on his throne of glory with innumerable angels and the saints who have gone before us are actually the audience. The congregation instead are the performers. Each of us has a costume to wear, being clothed with the Spirit of God. Each of us have lines to speak, words of encouragement, exhortation, and comfort, words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy to build one another up in love. Remember how Paul says that, speaking the truth in love, we might build one another up. Singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts, he says later in Ephesians. So we come dressed, we come with our lines prepared in order for the full production to take place. Our costumes, as I said, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus that each of us are to be clothed with. We then, our lines are like you know, us preparing, coming to service, whether that's when we rise in the morning or it's on our way to the gathering, it's just simply saying this, Lord, speak to me, speak through me. Lord, make me a channel and a minister of your grace. So we reflect then on our daily practices, you know, like get ready for the show, get ready for the production, come prepared, right? So how do we do that? We're reflecting on our daily practices, our heart motives, our mindset. We confess and repent. We're preparing to meet with God's people. We rehearse our lines and come prepared to play our part 
Holy Spirit, use me to bring encouragement and help to others through exhortation, encouragement, comfort, correction, love, or even affirmation. So we come prepared because we expect to meet with God. We expect to have an encounter with the living God and with God's spirit-filled people and to join God in this work of building his church to be a sign of his kingdom and of the new creation, a light and witness to the world. I think many times in our gathering, our expectations are too low. We come to church and we really aren't expecting to meet with God, maybe God's people, maybe God's word, but God himself. But the church is called in scripture the temple of the living God. We're living stones that are being assembled together in order to be inhabited by God's spirit. Did you know that in ancient times, temples were not just seen as buildings where people would sacrifice, they were actually considered portals, places on earth where heaven and earth coincided, where heaven and earth touched, where the human and the divine would come together and meet in communion. This is the same thing that is envisioned in the New Testament, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we gather together, God's spirit, God's presence inhabits the temple. We meet with the living God. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks about this. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may they hear is beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the writer of Hebrews wants to juxtapose the old covenant with the new covenant. Listen to what he says about the new covenant. Normally we read this and we're like, oh, phew, it's safer in Jesus. Not quite. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels in festal clothing, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, I read this passage in Hebrews, not because there's like apples to apples, but listen to what he's saying here. The church has been brought not to Mount Zion, not just to a stone temple. We have been brought into the very presence of the living God. When the church gathers together, heaven and earth collide. God's spirit touches down the human and the divine in holy communion. Is that the way we think about the gathering of God's people? Annie Dillard, she went to a gathering of Christians one time, and she was appalled by what she saw. Listen to this. 
On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Oh, Spirit of God, fall on us. Meet with us. That's what worship is. It is an encounter with the living God. Tim Dearborn says this, worship is a dramatic encounter with the power of God rather than a passive and comforting moment of education and encouragement. So church, when we come together, we should be prepared and expectant to encounter this living God, trusting that our God is going to be present to work, to build, to speak, to heal, to bind up, to save, to convict, to rebuke, to comfort, and he's going to use us to do that work. Remember, God is all about holy participation. He invites human being, God only knows why, in his grace and his mercy, in his unfailing love for humans, he invites us into his work his work of building up his church, his work of reaching the nations, his work of restoration, his work of comfort in your life and in your life and in my life. He uses us. He invites us to participate. Are we taking that seriously? Now, how then do we discover the Spirit's gifting and ministry in order to participate in this work? So Char, I hear what you're saying. I'm convicted. I want to work. I want to build something. Great. How do I do that? I believe the way that we need to do this is maybe a little bit different than what you've heard before. So how many of you guys have ever taken like a spiritual giftings test? Anybody ever done that? How'd that go? Like, I want them all. I don't know. I like them all, right? It's like sometimes when you do the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, you're like, I still don't know who I am, (laughs) you know? I'm more confused. I didn't even know there were that many options, right? I really, truly believe that the first step is we need to ask, what are the needs of the community that God has called me into? What and who needs to be built up? Where are the vacuums? Where are the hurts? Where is the brokenness? Where is the need? Remember, as I said, our individual gifting in ministry or manifestation of the Spirit are not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the whole. 
We ask the wrong question when we approach spiritual gifts. We say, what is my spiritual gift? We should be asking, why is my spiritual gift? For the upbuilding and maturity and growth of the body of Christ. Once we get that right, then we can actually look at the body of Christ and say, what is lacking? Where is their need? And then we say, here am I, Lord, send me, use me, right? That's how this should work. Dr. Russell Moore says this. He says, in too many of our congregations, spiritual gifts are seen through this hyper-individualistic grid. We tell our people how to unwrap their gifts, to take a personality profile to find out what their gift is. We say, every member is a minister, but what we often mean is every member should serve on a committee. He says, the gifts of the New Testament, though, function as part of a home economy. As the household is built up through the various parts thereof. In the New Testament, we do not find our gift through self-examination and introspection and then find ways to express it. Instead, we love one another. Serve one another. Help one another. And in so doing, we see how God has equipped us to do so. This is why Paul always speaks of spiritual gifts in terms of the whole body of order and of the primacy of love. So how do I discover my spiritual gift? Get involved in the community life of this church, and you will discover how God has gifted you as you interact with one another and find out the various needs and lack in this community. And as you do, I think you'll also find that your needs, your lack are met because this is how the body works. There's a classic story, classic, it's my life. I don't know how classic it is actually. Um, I was here 20 years ago almost, something like that, and I served as an intern pastor for a short season. And back in those days, you know, we, had, we wore suits. We were down here at the front at the very end of service just to meet and pray and give counsel, it's similar to what we do even to this day. But I'll never forget, I went into my dad's office between services and he said, aren't you supposed to be up front? I said, yeah, I'm supposed to be up front, but I'm just, I'm just empty. And I've been reading my Bible, I've been praying, you know, I've been meeting with other people, I've been doing all the things you're supposed to do. Like, I'm the living Acts 242. He's like, I just, I'm just empty. And he said to me, oh, be quiet, you big baby. Go out there, serve people, and you will discover that God's spirit is with you. I was like, oh, yeah, right. So here's what I did. I walked down to the front, stood there, I think I was folding my arms or something like that. And this sweet woman came up to me and started, I mean, she was, I think I was 18 at the time and she was in her 70s. And she started just pouring out her heart to me, telling me what was going on. And I'm not making this up. It was like everything I had been reading, everything I had been working through came alive. And I was able to offer it as a ministry, as a service to her. This is how the Spirit of God works and uses us. It isn't just that we get filled up and 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 filled up. We need outlet. We need to be poured out. And there are many opportunities. There are many needs. 
There are many who are hurting. And so as we fellowship with one another, as we interact with one another and are in proximity to one another, listen to the Spirit of God. Listen to what your brothers and sisters are telling you and minister out of that. The Spirit of God will meet you. And as you do this, I would also add to this, you can ask yourself things like this, well, what am I inclined towards? What am I passionate about? What do I see or what are others affirming in me? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you and lead you into opportunities to discover your gift or pray for a specific gift. If you see a lack in the body of Christ, I would exhort you, pray then to have that gift, to pour into that lack or to pour into that need. Paul says that we can desire other gifts and should ask for them. If we see the body of Christ lacking or handicapped in some way, then we can say, Lord, can I be a minister? Can I be a service? Can I be part of healing? I said this to the school of worship a couple weeks ago. Be the change that you want to see in the church. That should be the way that we are thinking. Don't be an outsider critic. Be an insider critic. Be a part of the health and growth of the body of Christ. Now, if we have some inclination or feel a leading of God's spirit in some gifting or ministry, then I would just encourage you, discover it through trial and error. Step into that. And do what you believe God is calling you to do, and you'll see what fruit comes from it. As I said, gifts are discovered in service to God and others. It's in humble service to others that we discover the gifts that we have and the greater gifts that we might need. Last thing I'll say, in exploring what God has for us, we need to avoid the danger of becoming consumed with the means or manifestation of the spiritual gift. I said this earlier. What spiritual gift is not the question. If we do that, we'll lose sight of the end goal of serving one another. Why the spiritual gifts? We'll lose sight of putting the life of Jesus on display and continuing God's mission in the world. So seek the end. Seek to love one another. Seek to put the life of Jesus on display. Seek to glorify God. And you will find your spiritual gifts. And our church community here will grow in wholeness and in health. In fruit and availability to the good things that God wants to do in our community. So the variety of gifts, services, and workings are manifestations of the Spirit in the life of Jesus' followers. So we can worship God, love and serve His people, and fulfill our mission of making disciples of all nations. It's so we might do God's work with God's power. That is liturgical work. Work that is done by us for the benefit of all. And let me just speak a word of encouragement and hope into this gathering here. I believe there are ministries, visions, 
empowerings and gifts, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, tongues and gifts of faith, discernment. I believe there is more churches to be planted, missionaries to be raised up. Evangelism, gospel proclamation to go out. Healings and blessings, prophecy, and the list goes on. A powerful manifestations of God's power and presence among his people. I believe God has all of that in the future of Calvary Costa Mesa. Brian and I said it a couple months ago, we do believe that God has good for us, and we are determined to seek that out. But I believe that only will happen as we as individuals open ourselves up to God, saying, use me, Lord. Animate the whole body, Lord. Speak through me, Lord, in order to build up and strengthen the body. As we come together with preparation and expectation, creating space in our hearts and in our gatherings together for the Spirit to speak and move through us. And so let's do that even now. The band's going to come out, and we're going to worship. And I encourage you to take this time to open your heart, open up your life to the searching of God's Spirit Have I just been riding on the bus, drowsy, not involved in the building of God's church and building of the kingdom of God? Spirit of God, awaken my soul to be a participant, to be a fellow builder and a laborer in the kingdom of God. This is a great opportunity for the Spirit of God to search our hearts for us to confess. Lord, I have not been serving and leaning into and building up your church. And then to turn from that, Lord, use me. Speak to me. Speak through me. Even today, in this time of worship, maybe the Spirit of God prompts you. You have a word for someone. You feel compelled to pray over someone or just to affirm someone. Do that. Use that gift. Listen to that urging of the Spirit of God as we go out into the courtyard. We always talk about that the prayer team is available. You know what? Everyone in this room is available for prayer. We're the body of Christ. We see that the pastors are available for encouragement and comfort and counsel. So are all of you. That's how the body works. And so pray this prayer with me. Spirit of the living God, Lord, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Awaken us. Lord, break up the hardened ground, the ways that we have quenched the Spirit, the way that we have closed ourselves off from its flow. Move again in and through us. Lord, bring this body into an 
every member ministry. Animate every member of this body for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, for the sake of the nations, Lord, we commit ourselves to you.